Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Former President Donald Trump gets slapped down by Facebook just as he continues his grand makeover of the Republican Party. Also, Postmaster General and ardent Trump supporter Louis DeJoy is now under federal criminal investigation. We'll get you the latest. And with demand winding down, the feds begin to ship COVID vaccines to other countries. Plus, the GOP passes new voting restrictions in 14 states, and the federal government might soon come clean about UFOs. But first, millions of Americans are set to lose their jobless benefits in at least 25 states, including Texas, Florida, Maryland, and Iowa. This is Republican governors are putting an early end to the $300 in supplemental weekly unemployment benefits. Joining me now is ABC's Elizabeth Schulze. And now these benefits were funded through September, so why are they being cut off? We have heard a lot of anecdotes from businesses across the country that they are struggling to find workers, that they cannot get the workers that they need to keep their businesses open, to reopen and to keep them running. And essentially what these Republican states that have ended these federal benefits early are saying is that the aid that these workers are getting is too much and it's disincentivizing people from returning to work. That's the excuse that they're giving as to why they should end these unemployment benefits early. Now, this jobs report that we got out today kind of gives a little bit of fodder to that argument. You know, job growth was a little bit weaker than expected. So certainly some Republican lawmakers are saying this is just further evidence that we should pull back on some of these benefits to get people out into the workforce again. On the other hand, you still have about seven and a half million people unemployed. There is a need for people to kind of have this aid while they're still trying to get back into the workforce. And, you know, we're, we're certainly seeing from the president, from other economists, this argument that it is just going to take a little bit of time for things to ramp up and that these this benefits are not the main reason why people aren't returning. To so work. this would be millions, if not billions of dollars in funding from the federal government. If the states are cutting it off, where would that money go? Yeah, notably, some of the states are actually reallocating the money to incentivize people to get to work with bonuses. They're offering you know money to say, here, if you come back, we'll give you this extra money to come into our jobs. But this was already allocated by the federal government. This is money that has been out there. And so certainly some of the workers I've been speaking with, some people who are really just struggling to find work or to find a fit that's right for them, they say this is already money that's allocated, that's provided. Why cut this off now when we're so close? You know, it was going to end in September anyways. But can the states really do this? Because it's Congress that decides how the federal money is spent, correct? Yeah, Congress allocates it. But one thing we know is that it's usually up to states for how to implement policies. We've seen this, you know, time and time again when it comes to these jobless programs. And really the the infrastructure for these programs, you know, this comes at the state level. People have to apply for aid through their state, you know, websites. And ultimately it's up to the states to create these rules. It doesn't look like the Biden administration or the White House has a lot of recourse as far as how to reverse some of these state level decisions. And essentially that is, you know, they're going to continue on to say this is ending early. And, and what we'll be really, you know, looking at now is some of these will end within the next few days. June 9th is when some of these benefits start expiring in a few of these states. It'll be really important to watch if the number of people on you know, claim it, filing for unemployment actually changes in response to this or if, if this is really a, a longer term problem, as as the Biden administration appears to be saying. And Elizabeth, while we've got you on the line with us, you've been covering another story as well. Facebook announcing Friday its suspension of Donald Trump's account from the platform will hold for two years. 
saying, given the gravity of the circumstances that led to Mr. Trump's suspension, we believe his actions constituted a severe violation of our rules, which merit the highest penalty available under the new enforcement protocols. That according to Nick Clegg, Vice President of Global Affairs for Facebook. And well, Elizabeth, this seems like a pretty severe punishment from the tech giant. Yeah, this is certainly what Facebook says, the most severe punishment it could come up with based on those comments that the former president made in support of his supporters who were storming the Capitol on on January 6th during the Capitol insurrection. So essentially, this is the first time we're getting a timeline from Facebook about how long former President Trump will be removed from Facebook as well as Instagram. And they're saying this two-year mark is from the date he was first suspended. That was January 7th of this year. So now he's going to be off offline on these platforms until at least January 2023. At that point, Facebook is then going to reevaluate if Trump still poses a risk. He could be reinstated at that time. They could decide to put some more restrictions on him or they could ban him altogether. But for now, this is the first kind of indication that for two years we won't be hearing from the former president. Notably, though, enough time before the 2024 presidential election, he, he could be back on the platforms by then. Has Facebook done this with anyone else before? This is a first of its kind decision from Facebook. And, you know, we are also seeing in addition to this is this decision on the former president, some new guidelines from Facebook on how it's going to kind of monitor political figures. Traditionally, Facebook has been very hands off when it comes to trying to remove content from public figures. It had this sort of newsworthiness exemption, which essentially it said the public gets the right to know what their leaders are saying, and we're going to be hands-off in removing what those comments are. But now the company says it's going to be taking a more active stance, moderating those comments, looking at public figure statements and saying, you know, questioning if they pose a risk. It is kind of instituting this strike system where a a strike could result in a, a punishment and then more strikes, the punishment could become more severe. So a shift from Facebook as far as really trying to take more of an active stance towards content from politicians on its platform. But certainly this seems to be in response to former President Trump. Well, I can't imagine that Republicans who have been very critical of Facebook and and how other tech companies have handled uh, speech issues such as this, uh, I can't imagine they're liking this idea at all. Yeah, no doubt about it. We've already heard so much criticism from these big tech for of these big tech companies, both from Republicans and Democrats in Congress who, who think they're just too big. They have too much power. But certainly Former President Trump himself not happy with this decision. He said in a statement he's being censored and silenced. He also repeated his false claims of of election fraud. So we'll have to see if there's more backlash, more kind of an effort to regulate these companies here on Capitol Hill. It's something we've heard a lot about. We've seen a lot of talk, but very little concrete action. And perhaps this could be something that could trigger more action on that front uh, in the next few months. All right, ABC's Elizabeth Schulze from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Still to come, even after leaving office in defeat, former President Donald Trump maintains an iron grip on the Republican Party. But what does that mean for the future of the GOP when the Como Politicast continues after this? Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelum. As Donald Trump ponders another presidential bid, top Republicans growing fearful about what they're calling the party's lost generation. That is the first line in a nice piece from Politico, written in part by David Siders, reporter for Politico, who joins me now on the Como Newsline. And uh, I, I guess first off, What are you talking about when you say the party's lost generation? I think what these Republicans are referring to are the more establishment-minded Republicans or upcoming Republicans who are either choosing to leave office or or, not seeking re-election or not pursuing it at all uh, because they see 
the party is so fundamentally changed from from where they were, you know, pre-Trump. And it, it's changed quite a bit. I don't think there's any question about that. In fact, uh, you use some statistics in the piece showing that some, what is it, 45% of Republicans that were in office when uh, Donald Trump took office are, are no longer with the party or on their way out. That's right. You saw a complete overhaul. And it's not even just the elected officials. It's the entire party apparatus. You go down to, you know, state party chairs in, in many states, uh, handpicked as would be expected by the, the president and his operation. And then going down to county and precinct level, the, the entire organization has been remade in, in Trump's image. So if you're a new, new Republican, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, maybe in Georgia, the, the firebrand Republican, or Lauren Boebert in, in Colorado, some of these Republicans who came up during Trump's time, that's fine. This is the, the party you're trying to make. Um, but if you are a little bit behind that generationally. So you came of age in the, you know, when Romney was, was the presidential nominee. That is the generation they're talking about being left behind. And what does this say about the future of the GOP? Because uh, a lot of the establishment politicians within the party, as, as you point out, seem very skeptical of, about this new wave of Trumpism that's coming through the party. Yeah, I mean, electorally, it's, it's a tough situation they're in, because on the one hand, you have to acknowledge that Trump brought out lots of new Republicans, uh, even in the last election that he lost. Um, on the other, he did lose that election. And Republicans continue to have a shrinking vote share in the national popular vote year after year. Since the 90s, they've, they've carried it once. And so if you're the Republican Party looking at that, that that's cause for for fear. And I guess what would be the gold medal for the Republican Party would be to find candidates who could somehow bridge the gap between people who believe in this conspiracy theory that the election was stolen, who believe you know, that lie and others along and bridge that with Republicans who want to talk about things like you know, reducing the debt, abortion, you pick your issue. That's a tall order. But, but that's, I think, what the GOP is, is staring at. It's been said in the past by Republican leaders and presidents that the Republican Party is a big tent, but they, they seem to be going through something of an ideological purge of those who don't agree with the former president. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You see these uh, you know, censure resolutions in states across the country where Republicans who've been critical of Trump have been reprimanded by their party. You know, in Georgia, which was kind of a center of this the election conspiracy phenomenon, the, the lieutenant governor not, not running for re-election, the secretary of state there, uh, Roffensperger, is running for re-election, but you know, for all intents and purposes, has been basically excommunicated from the party because he refused to go along with Trump. So, And, and then obviously Liz Cheney being stripped of House leadership, the most prominent example maybe. But that, that's a, you, you put it exactly right. It's, it's been a purge. Why is that? Why does Donald Trump have such control over the party when he first came onto the scene, I guess, for his presidential campaign and when he launched it in 2015, so much of the party was against him? Why does he now command such control of the rank and file? It's amazing, right? You, you make a good point. The, the first, you know, the Iowa caucuses in, in the 2016 election, he lost to Ted Cruz, and, and much of the establishment was against him. And you, you'll recall he also said that that election was fraudulent. And now uh, he does have the majority of the rank and file with him, including believing that the election was illegitimate. There's probably a million reasons to say, why Why is this person popular? That he is in part because he, he won. Um, and I think he said a lot of you know, his airing of grievances, especially for 
you know, less well-educated white men um, was exciting to a lot of white men without college degrees. And that revved up part of the party that just hadn't been there before. And if you're a traditionalist looking at the Trump phenomenon, I think one thing that you're worried about losing is that Trump did bring a lot of those, well, he did do a lot to make the party, at least rhetorically, uh, appealing to the working class in a way that, you know, traditionally had been had been Democrats turf. So that's what they're grappling with losing if they break away from Trump. And, and I think that's a big part of his appeal. And then you see a, a lot of almost copycat candidates down the ballot because, you know, Trump could run for another term in, in 2024, but he's not a young guy. He's not going to be a leader for the party for the next several decades. But you have a lot of people trying to step into that role in the mold of Donald Trump. Right. And I think we may have a great answer to many of these questions, not in the primary in 2022, but in the general election. So in the primary, Trump will have huge influence over congressional primaries, uh, primaries in various states where he picks candidates. Uh, As far as moving a Republican electorate, basically anywhere, uh, he's the gold standard. What is interesting is what happens to those candidates in November. I mean, here you have a Republican Party that has just been totally receding in America's suburbs to its detriment for for years. And Trump accelerated that. That's why the Democrats regained the House in 18. Uh, It goes a long way to explaining why Joe Biden beat Donald Trump. And what happens in some of those swing congressional districts, I think, will really decide what the what the future of Trumpism is. Who's the standard bearer right now, other than Donald Trump? Who, who's kind of the, the big young firebrand coming up in the Republican Party, do you think? Boy, for 2024? No, it's 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 Trump. It's, it can only be Trump right now, because, <laughs> you know, you talk to all of the, you, every, I think most of the other Republicans you would talk about, Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, Nikki Haley said it explicitly, these people are not going to challenge Trump if he runs uh, for election in 2024. So I, I don't think that there's a, a name or a personality out there yet competing with him. And that's part of the problem if you're trying to move the party past Donald Trump. Now, big caveat to that is if you had asked us about Donald Trump in what would it have been, you know, two, three years before he was elected in 2016, well, it was a joke. So these personalities can come on relatively quickly. Does this represent a fundamental shift in American politics, do you think? Certainly a big shift. The, the party has been revised, essentially, right? So, so if the party is something entirely different than it was four or five years ago, yeah, I think that's, that's a huge shift. And a lot of these trends are, are evident on the, the Democratic side, too. Things have changed mm-hmm. there as well and are changing, but nothing like what's going on with the GOP. Well, it should be interesting what we see over the next year and a half as we head to the midterm elections. Reporter David Siders with Politico, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you. I really appreciate it. Still to come, the federal government and UFOs. But when we come back, the Postmaster General, an ardent Trump supporter, is now under federal investigation when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy under investigation by the FBI. Matt Zapatoski is covering it for the Washington Post, and he shared all the details with Como's Taylor Van Sice. DeJoy is a name that a lot of us heard leading up to the 2020 election. Some feared that his history as a fundraiser for Republican candidates could have 
have an effect on how many mail-in ballots would be counted. Um, but why are the feds investigating him now? Well, the feds are investigating him now, not quite for that, but it is related to his history as a GOP fundraiser. So he used to run this company called New Breed Logistics. And last September, we had the Post reported on an apparent sort of straw donor scheme where his employees were giving to GOP candidates in the same amounts to the same people. And some of them alleged to us that DeJoy was then reimbursing them through company bonuses. And that that would be illegal, potentially illegal. So now the FBI is looking into that, this sort of campaign donation activity routed through his company to GOP candidates, which, which as I mentioned, would be called a straw donor scheme, and that would violate, potentially violate campaign finance law, though he's charged with no crimes and denies wrongdoing. So from what you and the Post have heard from these, these former employees of DeJoy's, um, have you been able to find uh, maybe a paper trail consistent with their claims? There is a paper trail in the sense of many employees on the same day donating to the same people. That's kind of sort of the tip in a lot of these straw donor cases. You have a number of new breed employees donating to the same Republican candidates. For some of these folks, too, their donation history sort of seems to only correspond to their work at new breed, which may be is a um, indication that they're getting reimbursed for that, that they're sort of not donating just to their own volition, but that someone's paying them back to do so. Now, some of the employees, I should note, say, no, 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 I'm just a donor. I, you know, I wasn't being reimbursed. There wasn't a connection here. I might have got bonuses, but it wasn't connected to that. But that's sort of the trail, these campaign finance records showing the donation activity of, of his previous employees. When I think of a campaign finance violation or, or an investigation into that, I, I would think maybe it would be the state elections board or someone at the state level taking a look at this instead of the federal level. Yeah, that's a good question. And the, the county district attorney, who naturally the question would fall to them, right? And there's no statute of limitations on this in the state system as there is in the federal system. But she, and she is a Democrat, has said, look, I just think this is a federal interest. A lot of the donations are being routed to federal candidates, not state candidates. So I'm not going to investigate this. I'm going to defer to the feds. And now we know, in fact, the feds are sort of running with this. They've interviewed a number of current and former employees of DeJoy and even um, subpoenaed DeJoy himself. And has DeJoy said anything? Because he's still on the job as Postmaster General. He is. In fact, yesterday when we approached him, you know, with our reporting about this investigation, he, through a spokesperson, said on the record, yes, it's true, I'm being investigated. It's for this campaign donation history, but I never knowingly violated the law. I've talked with Congress about this. That's true. And he sort of signaled that he intends to answer questions or cooperate with the Justice Department in some respect, saying, you know, I cooperated with Congress with this. I expect it will be no different from the Justice Department. He's given no indication that he's going to leave the job, nor has the Post Office Board of Governors, which I think is the body that could theoretically remove him. They haven't given any indication that this FBI investigation by itself is going to be cause for them to take action against him. Well, we'll keep an eye on your coverage. Matt Zapatoski with us on Como News, reporter for The Washington Post, and this story is online at WashingtonPost.com. Matt, thanks, and have a good weekend. That's Como's Taylor Van Sice. A little bit later, UFOs and the federal government. It's a story right out of the X-Files. But first, here's Greg Hersholt and Manda Factor. The White House COVID-19 response team has announced a plan to share millions of vaccine doses with other countries. This is National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. It recognizes our closest neighbors, Canada and Mexico, which received our first shared vaccines, and friends like the Republic of Korea, 
where our military shares a command. ABC News White House correspondent Karen Travers is with us again this morning. Karen, there had been a lot of pressure on the White House to do this. Yeah, there has been, and there will continue to be pressure for the administration to do more. The White House said yesterday that this is just the beginning, that there is more to come. Uh, But let me give you some of the numbers here. It's 80 million doses that will be donated, and 75%, uh, the White House says, will go to COVAX which is the global initiative for vaccine distribution. The White House says this will maximize the number of vaccines that are available equitably for the greatest number of countries and for those people in those countries that are most at risk. Priority for those doses will be Latin America and the Caribbean, South and Southeast Asia, and Africa. There's another remaining 25% that will go directly to countries in need. US, well, the United States will also give to Canada and Mexico and other countries that have requested immediate assistance. So White House today saying 1 million shots have already been sent out to South Korea. Uh, they should be arriving today. And the rest of this process, uh, no specific timeline for the full distribution, but the White House says they want this done as quickly as possible. One thing the president has paid a lot of attention to this week is infrastructure. Where do things stand this morning? Mm-hmm. He is scheduled today to have a phone conversation. We think it's a phone conversation. There's nothing on the public schedule at the White House. Uh, but he's connecting with Republican Senator Shelley Moore Capito to continue discussing whether or not they could bridge differences and reach a bipartisan agreement. Capito has been leading the Republican counteroffer effort. They had a conversation at the White House on Wednesday. Now, the president has made some pretty significant concessions in recent days, including setting aside the plan to raise the corporate tax rate from 20 to 28 percent. He's saying that corporations who pay little to nothing now should pay at least a minimum of 15 percent. Republican leadership has still pushed back on this. And, you know, the clock is ticking. The White House has said that they would like to see a bipartisan agreement. But at some point, inaction is not acceptable. Do we know if the Republicans have been willing to compromise as much as the White House has been? I think it depends on who you ask. They'll certainly say that they've come up significantly in their numbers, uh, just shy of a trillion dollars from an original offer that was, I think, a little bit less or right around $500 billion. Uh, the president had put forward a counteroffer that was $1.7 trillion, down from his $2.3 trillion. So everybody's saying they're making making moves, but there are still big differences. I mean, $1 trillion to $1.7 trillion is a lot of money. It's a big, big amount that there is wide differences. And then the big question has been, how do you pay for it? And the president has insisted that corporate taxes have to be part of this. Republicans have said that is something they cannot get on board with. ABC News White House correspondent Karen Travers. That's Greg Hersholt in Mandefactor. Still to come, the fight over the ballot box as several Republican-led states curtail the right to vote when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Democrats repeated calls for Congress to pass sweeping voting rights legislation after efforts to pass election reform in Texas led to a walkout by House Democrats over the holiday weekend. The calls for federal legislation come as restrictive voting bills work their way through Republican-led state legislatures. Joining me now is ABC's Alex Prochet from Washington, D.C. And uh, this has been something that's been going on since the uh, 2020 election. Former President Donald Trump said there was all sorts of voter fraud, never presented any evidence of it. But nevertheless, Republicans are in lockstep behind him and are passing all of these laws to really kind of deal with a problem that isn't there. Let's be clear. There has been no widespread 
voter fraud uh, presented uh, from the 2020 election. Um, in fact, there are multiple uh, Republican states, states where there are Republican governors or Republican secretaries of state that were in charge of the election, uh, where those elections actually ended up going in the favor of Democrats. And, and those elected officials have come out and said that there was no widespread fraud uh, and, and there have been several audits. So uh, absolutely correct on that front. But look, here's, here's where we stand the landscape right now. Uh, there are at least 14 states that have passed laws that make voting more restrictive just this year in Texas is now vying to become the, the 15th. Uh, you mentioned Democrats staging that, uh, that dramatic midnight walkout in the House floor, uh, to keep, uh, to keep a bill from being passed. But, you know, look. It's a temporary fix. Uh, we're expecting any day now that the governor, Greg Abbott, will call a special uh, legislative session to to pass uh, that restrictive voting bill, which, again, is um, is is all kind of stems from from some of these charges that the former president has put forth about uh, election fraud that uh, that he hasn't provided uh, proof for. What can Congress do here? There are two voting bills that are being considered by Congress. Uh, the first is called the For the People Act. Uh, and it's the most sweeping, if you will. It passed the House in early March, uh, and it does things like setting a national standard for voting uh, registration and mail-in voting. It, it also uh, expands independent nonpartisan redistricting in each state uh, and introduces campaign uh, finance uh, uh, parameters. Now, that's something that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has told uh, reporters that he's going to bring to a vote later this month, but it faces a big uphill climb in the Senate. Democrats need at least 10 Republicans to get on board unless they do this through something called reconciliation. But in order for that to happen, they would need to get rid of the filibuster. And that's also uh, an uphill climb because uh, there are two Democratic senators, uh, specifically uh, 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 Joe Manchin in West Virginia and Kristen Sinema in Arizona, who, who oppose getting rid of the filibuster. So that is that is a no-go uh, for them. So getting this passed is going to be a a really, really tough, uh, tough order in the Senate. Now, the other bill that's being considered uh, is the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Now, that was something that was, that was actually passed uh, in, uh, in, a, in a previous Congress. It hasn't come to a, to a, to a House vote yet. But essentially what that does is it makes it easier for uh, the federal government to, to, to step in um, when uh, there, are, there are allegations of, of, uh, of, of um, uh, unfair practices whenever it comes to people voting. And that really kind of goes back to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, doesn't it, where the states that had a history of these Jim Crow voting laws preventing uh, minorities from going to the polls, poll taxes and all that, had to get pre-clearance from the federal government. Exactly. And so essentially it restores the pre-clearance formula from the Voting Rights Act of 1965, uh, which the Supreme Court struck down in 2013. What's interesting about this is that, uh, and this is something that uh, ABC News has gotten exclusively today, uh, Joe Manchin actually does support this legislation. Uh, so it's yet to be seen whether or not uh, how Kristen Sinema feels about it or if there are enough uh, Republicans in the Senate to go along with it. But um, it, while 
Manchin does not uh, support the For the People Act, he would go along with the uh, the John Lewis Act. So what are some of the states, you, we, we, we've talked about Texas, but what are some of the other states that have passed these restrictive voting laws? Florida is another one um, where they've uh, cut back on, on, on mail-in balloting, among other things. And then, uh, I mean, think about uh, Georgia is, is another big one. And, and why, why I highlight Georgia is because, well, Georgia historically has been a, a, a red state, a GOP stronghold even. Um, we saw it shift completely during this 2020 election, right? Not just in the Electoral College, but also in that uh, that Senate race that went to a uh, went into a runoff and, and both seats turned blue, giving Democrats a majority in, in the Senate. And so, um, you know, Georgia passed a law the end of March and they got a lot of pushback for it, for making it harder to vote there. Protests uh, that uh, that petitioned a lot of the companies that are headquartered in Atlanta uh, to, to stand up against it. And so I mean, we, we heard from 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 Coca-Cola and 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 and, and Delta and, and some of uh, some of the other players uh, that, uh, that that spoke out against this legislation. And notably, the MLB All Star Game was set to be held in Atlanta uh, this year in Cobb County specifically. Uh, and MLB reacting specifically to this new voting rights legislation that made it more restrictive to vote pulled their uh, pulled their game, uh, which uh, is estimated. And some estimations say, you know, we'll, we'll take away upwards of $100 million worth of business uh, from that area. So how partisan is this? You see all these Republican legislatures passing these restrictive voting laws. But what about in, in the Congress? Do you have a lot of Republicans supporting those uh, measures or are they uh, a little more skeptical? This is kind of states going about it at their own uh on their on their own rights, right? Um, at least for now. But what I will say across the board, we know that um, it is a priority, whether it be uh, local Republicans, state level Republicans, or Republicans here on the House to flip Congress, right? This uh, for this upcoming midterm. I mean, that is priority number one. And so, anything that 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 aids that effort seems to be welcome. Even looking at uh, the creation of a January 6th commission to investigate, you know, the the, the, the Capitol riot, it's, uh, a, a lot of Republican strategists, um, you know, they didn't see having the creation of a commission to examine that as advantageous going into uh, midterm elections. Um, and their number one priority is winning the House. And so that's why you saw a lot of Republicans that were uh, reluctant to, to support. It. And it's ultimately why, why, why it failed. I think, you know, you, you look at the way some of uh, these voting laws are structured, specifically there in Texas, uh, where, uh, you know, you uh, have more restrictive hours for Sunday voting, more limited mail-in drop-offs. Um, this past election, we've had programs like Souls for the Polls that have gone into black churches in, in, in deep blue areas, specifically in Harris County and Houston, taking folks to, to, to vote immediately after after Sunday service. You know, that's, that's what a lot of... A, a lot of critics to to these bills will, will say, like, look, I mean, this is this is clearly aimed at making uh, uh, setting the the, the the table to make it a little more bit more advantageous for uh, for Republicans to uh, to gain the House. All right, ABC's Alex Brashey from Washington D.C. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Still to come, the Pentagon is about to release a report on UFOs. What we might learn when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment.
Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Here's something a little different, shall we say. Later this month, U.S. intelligence agencies will present to Congress a highly anticipated unclassified report about UFOs, or as the Pentagon now calls them, unexplained aerial phenomena. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. And uh, Andy, this is a story right out of the X-Files, isn't it? It is. Funny you mention that. It's <laughs> going to be the, the only report that uh, has its own theme song, which is kind of cool. I don't know if they'll play this theme song in Congress, but they could. Uh, and uh, playing the part of Agent Muldar is uh, Senator Marco Rubio, who managed to get this thing uh, passed into law so that the Defense Department actually has to put this report out by the end of June. And then what happens is we will find out what they know and, or what they've decided to declassify. And some of the videos we've seen over the last year of military aircraft and even commercial aircraft, seeing these things that look like they're not regular aircraft, they're something otherworldly, but we still don't know what they are. We're going to find out um, how big they are, how fast they were going, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to get answers. We may just get facts and figures and the military and intelligence officials will say we still don't know what it is do we know if this is going to be a highly redacted report more than likely almost anything that is declassified ends up being you can't believe this and then lots of black lines (laughs) Uh, which seems to be the way the government works when they release uh, declassified information and then we never know what's really funny is that uh, dr fauci uh, had all his emails or some 10,000 of them released from the beginning of the pandemic uh, to somewhere. And of course, Fauci's enemies are saying, see, he said you you don't have to wear a mask. And of course, that's not what he said. He, he, so he was answering someone's email saying, uh, do I need to wear a mask? This was back in February before he or anyone else knew how um, communicable this was just person to person, even if you didn't have symptoms. And he said, well, uh, you know, a regular over-the-counter store bought mask isn't probably going to offer you much protection. So no, but he also said things changed along the way. Well, a lot of that stuff is redacted. Uh, a lot of things in the emails for personal or confidential reasons were were redacted. And someone asked Dr. Fauci today, "Well, tell us what's in the redacted section sessions." And and he <laughs> laughed and said, "You know." There's 10,000 emails. So, of course, I remember every word of everything in those emails, uh, you know, being pretty snarky about it. And I think that's going to be what you see in these UFO reports or, as you said, unexplained aerial phenomenon, because we don't know if they're actually objects or, you know, maybe it's a tear in the space time continuum for all we know. And we're, you know, there's a black hole hovering above the United States and creating these weird effects. We don't know exactly what it is, but we can be sure that there's going to be a lot of classified information that gets blacked out in these things. And we may end up being more confused than we were when we began this thing. So why now? Has there been a a resurgence in interest in these things? Because I can remember as you played the theme song from the X-Files, there was high interest back in the 90s. But uh, the idea of UFOs and and all of this stuff has kind of waned from the public zeitgeist. I think part of it is that some of these videos were declassified by the military and put out there. And that was part of it. Uh, The other part is that 
they have not discounted the fact that perhaps these are man-made phenomenon or aircraft or some sort of flying object made by another country that has technology that we in the United States don't know about that's so advanced that they're just toying with us to see whether our defenses can do anything about this. And that seems a bit far-fetched, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. And if that's the case, then the military and certainly folks who deal with technology and defense in Congress want to know about this so that the U.S. can catch up. Again, this is all speculation, but it's not my speculation. This is speculation by folks, including uh, Agent Moldar, a.k.a. Senator Marco Rubio, uh, who's insisted on getting this report before Congress by the end of this month. Remember, he was uh, in charge of the committee when the Republicans were in charge of the Senate uh, before the last election. And so he was able to get this thing through. How bipartisan is this? Are Democrats on board with a lot of this? Because I'm sure the Pentagon is a bit resistant because they are very loath to reveal any information that uh, would unveil you know, processes or secrets or, or any technology. Certainly the Pentagon and intelligence agencies don't like to show you the methods they use for gathering these things. And I think that's what's going to be redacted. Uh, but in terms of bipartisanship, I can't imagine that this is a Republican, Democrat, independent, libertarian or anything. If indeed we are being visited by alien beings, I think pretty much across the board, that would be a bipartisan. Yeah, we kind of like to know who these folks are. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Joe. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and of course for health, wellness, and more, take a listen to The Fit Mess with Jeremy Grader. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening and have a good week.